Chapter Nineteen of the Typewriter Girl. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Typewriter Girl by Grant Allen. Chapter Nineteen. Oh, Romeo, Romeo! When Linnaeus first saw Gorse in blossom, he fell on his knees and thanked God. Our modern Pharisees, who say grace before meat, never, I fancy, say grace before Venice. And yet there is only one Venice. From the moment you arrive in the dusk at the station and stroll down slippery steps to your gondola to glide with stealthy movement along the lesser canals under mysterious bridges where mysterious bystanders lean over to watch you unknown forms that creep from dark doors in unknown streets do you not thank god like linnaeus that he has brought you to venice and does not this feeling of gratitude and wonder for that living romance deepen on you each day that you remain do you not long to float forever down those noiseless ways to gaze up forever at those water-stained palaces to dream for all time among those innocent-faced st ursulas mint anise and cumin indeed when god has given us venice the country or the south i pine in london i had loitered on my way out breaking my nights at lucerne and milan that romeo might have time to reach his journey's end with certainty before my arrival and on my first morning of freedom by the motionless lagoons i set out early to renew my acquaintance with venice i did not know where romeo was stopping nor did i seek to find out i left everything to st nicholas if chance should throw me in my romeo's way well and good if chance chose to be unkind better so than that i should track him besides in venice you cannot long fail to meet whoever else is there all the world gravitates towards the centre of the piazza sooner or later you must needs cross the path of every one in the city i set out from my hotel on foot i love footing it in venice i love the intricate tangle of narrow paved alleys overhung by stone sills and rusty iron balconies by which the walker threads his way through the mazes of the city millionaires in gondolas never know it you must ramble to see venice past little dim shops where red watermelons sliced open and strings of yellow carrots adorn the slabs past odours of salt fish and rank whiffs of garlic past cavernous recesses where from murky tintoretto-like gloom the light of a little lamp just serves to throw up the tinsel crown of our lady so suddenly at once under the columns of a portico into the open sky of the great square the thronging turmoil of pigeons the liberal flood of southern sunshine the strong shadow of the campanile flung like a fallen obelisk on the floor of the piazza the mighty flagstaffs of the dead republic and beyond them all low and squat a riot of white domes the fantastic many-pinnacled carven front of st mark's glowing golden in the pellucid air of morning i stood still and drew a deep breath it was even as i thought grace before st mark's for what we are about to receive there is but one venice holding my breath all the while i drew near the great porches with their round arched tops and gazed up 
at the mosaics. My soul steeped herself in beauty. I revelled in an orgy of jasper and porphyry. How gross to give thanks for beef and pudding, but none for Carpaccio, Bellini, Titian. Slowly, out of the great dream of form and colour, bit by bit, as I gazed, distinct visions framed themselves. Palm leaves and lilies, robed shapes of angels, half-translucent alabaster shafts or capitals, rich foliage of acanthus, wandering lines of tracery. In the midst of it all, one little relief held my eye at last, a flat relief of quaint Romanesque workmanship, beautiful with the winning beauty of infantile art. Two birds that faced one another and pecked at a bunch of grapes, when all at once I was aware of a start of surprise beside me. I turned round, my heart fluttered for a second. It was Romeo. Venice faded. Though I had come out to him, I was taken aback at his presence. He gave a little gasp. What, you here? he faltered out. Miss Appleton, Juliet. Yes, I answered, assuming an air of unconcern. I thirsted for a breath of Italy again. It is nearly five years since I have been out of England. But this is fate, he blurted out. I, I came here to avoid you. I was in a mischievous mood. I can go away again, I answered, looking deep into his eyes and half curtsying. It is not for me to interfere with my employer's holiday. He cast me an imploring look. Juliet, he cried, do not jest, do not break my heart. This is no time for pleasantry. My child, my child, I have suffered. I saw it in his face, and yet I could not conceive what was his trouble. Could a mother count for so much? I had never known mine. You look ill, I said, so different from what you looked last week in London. Can I do anything for you? I, I will really go away at once, if you desire it. He restrained himself with an effort from seizing my hands, then and there, in the open piazza. Go away, he cried. Go away? No, that is not my trouble. I wish you not to go away. I wish you to stay with me always. Juliet, you must have guessed it. You must have known it in London. Do not tell me you did not know. You saw that I loved you. I thought so at times, I answered in a very low voice. But why, then, did you wish to run away from me? He glanced about him with uneasy eyes. Now this has come, he burst forth. I must fight it out boldly. I must face it like a man. Juliet, where can we go? I must talk alone with you. Let us take a gondola, I suggested, my heart throbbing high with joy, for I felt I had triumphed now. His mother and dear Meta, the ox-eyed lady Donisthorpe, were wholly forgotten. A gondola, he echoed. A gondola? Ah, how clever you are. Of course, I never thought of that. There we can talk uninterrupted. We moved towards the Molo. I hailed a gondolier. Put up the feltse, I said so that we may not be overlooked. The man raised the little black box and shut us in, as in a sedan chair. Romeo gazed admiration again. And you talk Italian. Whither, signore? the gondolier asked. Where shall we go? Romeo inquired, turning to me. Where you will, I answered. It is all Venice. I did not add that with him by my side all the world would be Venice. He pointed towards the open, where we would be less observed. 
The gondolier nodded. Then the old fancy seized me. To San Nicolo de Lido, I cried. It seemed like an omen. My patron saint had always brought me luck, and his church lay before me. In this crisis of my fate, I would commend myself to his favour. I told Romeo why I chose that way. He smiled a little sadly. May it turn out as you wish, he exclaimed. May St. Nicholas help us. I sat by his side on the soft black cushions, never uttering a word, placidly, quietly happy. I was in no hurry to speak. The sense that I had Romeo alone to myself at last was joy enough for me. He took my hand in his. I let it lie there unresisting. Words only spoil such first thrills of fruition. Touch is the mother sense of love. It needs no interpreter. At last Romeo broke the charmed silence. I gave a little sigh as he broke it. Oh, why so soon, I asked. But like a man he was eager to speak and explain himself. They are so precipitate. What am I to do, Juliet? he cried, burying his face in his hands. Your coming has thrown me back upon my first resolve. It has driven me from my stronghold. When I tore myself away from you in London, and no longer saw your eyes, those great magnetic, uncomplaining eyes of yours, those eyes that have bewitched me, I made up my mind that I must go through with it now and try to forget you. Not try, but pretend, for it would be all pretense. Since the first day you came, daily and daily you have meant more and more to me. It was hard to break away from you, but I broke away and came here so that I might be free from the spell. For while I saw your eyes, I could think of nothing else, and now chance has thrown you in my path again, and I cannot go through with it. Not chance, I murmured low, not chance, but St. Nicholas. I have come with the money that my story brought me. He smiled at my little conceit, for I had told him in London of my half-fanciful cult, of the poor maid saint, and I had called my little tale a ward of St. Nicholas. You are a brownie, he cried, gazing at me. You wild thing, what brought you here? I laughed. The Goddard Railway and my love of adventure. I was sickening of England. I had a migratory instinct, like birds when they gather on the telegraph wires in autumn, or restless Spanish sheep in spring, when they herd and leap, uneasy to be driven to their pastures in the mountains. What a wild thing you are, he repeated. A brownie, a brownie. I wonder where you got it from. From my gypsy ancestry, I suppose, I answered. Gypsy, but I thought you told me you were American. On my father's side, yes, but on my mother's, Lowland Scot, or Anglo-Indian. She was a bailey of the borders, and I suspect all borderers of sharing the blood of the Faz and the Petalengros. There was plenty of intermarriage. No doubt, he mused, the difference must have been slight between a moss trooper and a gypsy. Each had much the same gentility. And indeed, I remember, the Lord and Earl of Little Egypt was summoned to Edinburgh as a peer of Parliament. At any rate, I said gaily, whether tis true or false, it accounts to my mind for the Meg Merrily's vein in me. I was born a random vagrant in the world, a peripatetic philosopher. I love movement. I love freedom. Bohemia. Why, I could tell your fortune now if you cared to cross my hand with silver. He gazed into my eyes. 
I do not doubt it, he answered, for it lies in your hands to-day. I thrilled and was still. The gondola glided over the glassy water. Soon he began again. Gypsy, I want your help. You must make my fortune, not tell it. Show me how to act. Show me how to get free. What can I do in this crisis, Juliet? My Juliet. How can I answer, I replied. Tis for your own heart to say. I know you are fond of me, but your mother has money, I suppose, and you prefer your mother. He withdrew the arm that lay half round me, and sat up facing me in surprise. My mother, he cried. My mother? Why, Juliet, my child, what do you mean? It is not my mother I think of, not her, but poor Meta. A pang darted through me. Then you love her, I exclaimed. That woman's daughter. Love her? I do not say that. Yet, Juliet, consider. Put yourself in her place. I have been five years engaged to her. It burst upon me like a thunderbolt. Why had I never guessed it? From the first day we met I had taken it for granted, unreservedly, unthinkingly, that Romeo was heart-free and unfettered as I was. Even when I met Lady Donisthorpe, I imagined too fast that she was flinging Meta openly at his head, but not that he was betrothed to her. My own heart must have blinded me. Now that I realized it all, I stood aghast at the way woman's instinct had failed me. How had I managed to misunderstand? I saw in a flash that the conflict I had observed in Romeo before he left London was a conflict in his soul between love and honour. He seized my hand again. It is that that made it so difficult, he whispered. From the first day you came, I began to love you. I fought against it hard, oh, so hard. I tried to talk little with you. Day after day I felt you sitting there, with your great gypsy eyes fixed ever steadily on your sheet of paper, and your heart going forth to me. I knew it went forth to me. I could feel it in the room. A subtle wave or thrill throbbed ever between us. I began to love you, and still I fought hard. But the more we talked together, the more did I feel you were the woman God made for me, and that Meta was not. At last I had a great struggle, a great struggle with my heart, and came out of it as I thought victorious. I fled from you here, where the Donisthorpes had come, to remain with Meta till the day I married her. It was what honour demanded. I made love yield to honour. I withdrew my hand slowly. Give me time to think this out. It has burst upon me so suddenly. Oh, Romeo, till this moment I never dreamt you were engaged to her. Why, Romeo? I smiled, though my heart was aching. I remembered that he did not know what I had always called him. Now I told him my fancy. You have never been anything but Romeo to me, I murmured. He seized my hand again. Juliet, I am your Romeo. I felt it from the first. We were meant for one another. I know it, I cried. I know it. And this woman, who is not yours, has stolen you from me. You are mine by natural fitness. And she took you. She took you. We leaned back on the seats and mused. The gondolier sang low to himself a soft Venetian love-song. After some minutes I began again. Of course, I murmured, it is Lady Donisthorpe's daughter. Of course, five years ago I proposed to her. Then why did you not marry? I cried vehemently. 
I hate these long engagements. They are vile for everybody. Her stepfather would not permit it till she came of age. She is a ward in chancery, and he has influence with the court. Till her marriage, her mother has some interest in the property, and Sir Everard, to preserve it, being fabulously rich already, made an excuse that a publisher was hardly the person to whom she might expect to aspire, though he permitted, or rather encouraged, the engagement. And she is not yet of age? In October. I gave an impatient wave of the hand. But she was a child when you proposed to her. A child? We were both children. We did not know our own minds. The nemesis of it is that I know mine now, while she remains still at the childish standpoint. She loves you? In her baby way, yes. Else it were all easy. But it would break her poor heart. Such a trusting little creature. And you love her? Juliet, I thought I did once. But then I had not learnt what love meant. She was only my Rosalind. I did not know the world of difference between a sweet little wax doll with masses of light yellow toe for hair and a woman, a thinking woman with heart soul brain courage a woman who could face life full of intrepid self-reliance a woman with nerve audacity spirit a woman with homeric love of danger and adventure a woman made dearer by her sense of humour the merry twinkle of her eye her gay laugh at misfortune i feel now that i need a comrade and a help meet for me some one who could brace me up for the battle of life someone with great thoughts fine fibre noble impulses i cannot go back to meta i could have done it last night this morning with you by my side i feel it i know it impossible he drew a long breath i lay back on the cushion romeo i said pleading my rival's cause you must go back to her never he answered never i temporized this is not a question to decide all at once let us think it over slowly. Let us lay it before St. Nicholas. If I lay it before St. Nicholas, he cried, with you beside me, the oracle can give but one answer, I warrant. For I want you. I need you. My whole being cries out for you. We paused again. The water was cat's eye green. The inexorable gondola glided on towards the Lido. We talked it over clause by clause. A light began to break upon me. The nearer I drew to San Nicolo, the clearer grew the light. Ought a man to wreck two lives, his own and the girl's, whom he means to marry, for my private fate I ignored, in order to satisfy a false sense of honour? What, after all, was this honour? A bugbear dressed up to frighten us from the truth. And what was the truth? That Romeo was rushing madly into marriage with a girl for whom he was not fit, and who was not fit for him. Romeo, I said at last, could you make her happy? That's the rub, he answered. It could hardly be for long. I could give her my hand, but not my heart. For my heart, my heart, Juliet, is yours, yours only. Then for her sake, set her free i cried the whole man body soul and spirit or nothing so i think he murmured the question is when one has made a mistake a mistake that involves final ruin for two lives 
which is the better after all to repair it beforehand while repair is still possible or bow to an antiquated ideal of honour an ideal that comes to us from an age when women were toys all alike and run one's head into a noose from which there will be no escaping for her sake as well as my own and yours ought i not to tell her frankly but gently that this marriage she desires must mean misery for both of us i tried to be impartial though impartiality is hard when your own love and life lie trembling in the balance you ought i answered if you feel sure you cannot truly love her juliet i can never love any one but you i know you for my counterpart my love did not come suddenly it grew up by degrees from living so near you and it has grown 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 like a vast growth in my heart till it has absorbed my nature i have watched you every day talked with you listened to you you know me and you understand me but meta dear little soul she seems to me like a child i cannot share life with her i can only take care of her you have originality initiative meta's soul has the shape that her mother has put upon it look how you loved and appreciated my verses your criticism your help were of infinite use to me in each word that you altered i felt you were right your suggestion of harmonious in that last line where i had written consistent made a full close for the sonnet in sonorous organ music and turned my prose into poetry whereas when i gave meta my book she read it through and then kissed me how clever of you you dear boy to be able to write verses would such a help be meet for me i clung to his hand it was hard to decide but in a very low voice i faltered out i think not romeo he talked of my poor attempts at writing stories he praised them as he had always done you will be famous yet my child and i shall be proud whatever comes that i was the first to encourage you he appreciated me i appreciated him surely if marriages are made in heaven we two were moulded for one another not alike but complementary and then how rash to dream of marrying one woman when even before marriage you love another better is that the way to ensure a happy home is that the safe path to a life of wedded confidence we drew near to san nicolo at last let us go in i said seriously and submit ourselves to the saint his body lies within we will kneel together before it but i thought you told me st nicholas lay throned in a gorgeous shrine in barry he objected why of course i answered what is the use of being a saint if you cannot have two bodies and be in two places at once and what is the use of faith if it does not enable you to believe the impossible i do believe it he answered since i came to venice to be out of your enchantment and found you here more deliciously enchanting than ever the fascination of your eyes i cut him short with a gesture but i was glad he praised them we landed by the steps and entered the sailor's church i led romeo up to a scalloped niche by the tribune where i had often prayed as a girl with my father 
we knelt down side by side before the jewelled shrine that contains the blessed dust of saint nicholas of myra i hope not irreverently i may be what the warden at our guild was fond of calling me an amiable heathen but at least i am sincere tears stole down my cheek i asked with an earnest heart for light for guidance we know not indeed whose saintly bones repose at peace within that sculptured marble altar tomb nor does it matter to me much whether they be or be not those of the benign bishop of myra i accepted them as the symbol of that power above ourselves to which our hearts go forth at moments of doubt of fear of anguish and to such a power i prayed unfeignedly that at this turning point of my life i might be led aright might form the just judgment unbiased by self-profit holding an equal scale between myself and my rival as i knelt there a single flashing ray of light beat down through a little window above upon san nicolo's altar slab it gilt the niche for a moment it fell in gold on the tessellated floor then it passed away as a cloud covered the sun rightly or wrongly i accepted the omen tears stood in my eyes still but they were tears of gladness st nicholas has answered i whispered what did he say to you romeo romeo looked me in the face solemnly as he made reply he said better tell her early than tell her too late save her while she can be saved and let three hearts be lightened venice hung like a haze the row back to the molo was a lane in paradise End of chapter nineteen